0: God bless you all. My name is David from the Resurrection Center. You might think your watch is broken because it keeps saying the same time. It keeps saying it's the end times. Well, it's not broken. And at the Resurrection Center, Pastor Jose has been introducing the signs of the end times. So we've been talking about the the four signs of the end times. Two we've uh, already discussed. For example, many will be offended and the false prophets and false teachers as the second sign. And then Pastor Jose introduced the third sign, which is lovers of themselves. So before we close out the third sign of the end times, we'll, make, we'll take a step back and look at the environment we're living in. We'll first look at our surroundings and see what we're faced with. You'll see that we all have become numb to our sinful existence. We are accepting the outcomes of tragedy and sorrow Because of that, history repeats itself and we continue to go down the same path. That is why the signs of the end times exist. So step one, we're going to see some newsworthy items. We're going to see what we've been living in. Step two, we'll understand better the signs of the end times. So as I mentioned already, so far we've already talked clearly about the the first sign, many will be offended. The second sign, false prophets and false teachers. Then Pastor Jose introduced the third sign, uh, lovers of themselves. Today, we continue on the third sign. But first, looking at newsworthy items will help illustrate the signs of the end times that we have been talking about. Then we'll dive deeper and investigate further the third sign, lovers of themselves. So buckle up, strap in, and hang on. So what's happening today? There's going to be eight things that we'll be doing today. Number one, we'll do a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. Number two, we'll look at the world we live in today. Number three, we'll look at the delusional state we are in. Number four, more on the third sign, lover of themselves. Then number five, the cultural behaviors of the end times. Number six, famines and pestilence. This is the beginning of sorrows that we talk about in the Bible, but we're going to talk about the famines and pestilence that we're dealing with. And number seven, we'll talk about the hope for those who trust the Lord. And our focus will be on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. So let's talk about the signs of the end times. So earthquakes, famine, wars, lawlessness. Most Christians have the same ideas of the signs that occur during the time the Bible calls the last days. Well, guess what? We're living in them now. We've been talking about the end times. First, many will be offended. Second, false prophets, false teachers. Third, lover of themselves. And fourth, coming to a resurrection center near you. So let's first look at the world we live in. That will help us better understand the signs of the end times. Let's talk about the world we live in. Today, we take so much conflict, distrust, and unethical behavior for granted. We accept it. We think it's normal. Here's a short snapshot of what things are like today. Here's the world we live in as it pertains to us in the United States. Before we apply the signs to the end times, (laughs) let's look at the following. There are six things. Number one, gun violence in safe settings. Number two, the global recession of 2008-2009. Number three, language and politics. These are our leaders. Number four, uh, Black Lives uh, Matter and the George Floyd incident. Uh, Number five, the Me Too movement. By the way, Bill Cosby was released. Number six, January 6th, insurrection and the Capitol riots. After we look at this, then we'll understand how the signs of the end times are more recognizable. By talking about these topics, our eyes will be open. So let's take a look. Number one, gun violence in safe settings. The Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting on December 14, 2012, when uh, 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 children between 6 and 7 years old. The shootings have become uh, at a relentless growing pace. 2020 was the deadliest gun violence in in, uh, decades. And so far, 2021 is worse. It has unfolded on city streets and in family homes, away from the cameras and far from the national spotlight. Through the first five months of 2021, that's this year, gunfire killed more than 8,100 people in the United States, about 54 lives lost per day, according to a Washington Post analysis of data from the Gun Violence Archive, which is a nonprofit research organization. That's 14 more deaths per day than the average toll during the same period of the previous six years. Number two, global recession of 2008-2009. The financial crisis was primarily caused by deregulation in the financial industry. That means it was mismanaged. That permitted banks to engage in hedge fund trading with derivatives. That means irresponsibility. The derivative itself is a contract between two or more parties, and the derivative derives its price from fluctuations in the underlying asset. What does that mean? Basically, false trust in the financial sector. Banks then demanded more mortgages to support the profitable sale of these derivatives that came from false trust. That created the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession. What was the outcome of the Great Recession? The over 4% decline in gross domestic product, that's the GDP, was only reversed more than three years after the beginning of the recession. During the worst part of the Great Recession, virtually every segment of the U.S. economy was adversely affected. The U.S. households lost an average nearly $5,800 in income due to reduced economic growth, during the acute stage of the financial crisis from September 8th through the end of 2009. The main culprit of the crisis was financial regulation and supervision. That's why I say it was mismanaged. The entrusted regulators were not good stewards of financial prosperity affecting households. The 2020 recession was the worst recession since the Great Depression. However, in April 2020, It was already worse than the 2008 recession in its initial ferocity. In November 2020, stock markets recovered and jobs were added back into the uh, economy. In 20 years, the entrusted stewards of our economic financial engine just point fingers towards each other without accountability. It's a behavior that is destructive, that has a ripple effect going all the way to our children and they are our future. The destructive behavior of not having accountability is now considered normal, which is why history repeats itself. Number three, language and politics. This, this is coming from our leaders. People look up to our leaders. Cursing in public, is it legal? Although it's probably not a great idea to curse in public, most states don't punish you for it unless it is followed by threats or fighting words. Some states like Virginia, for example, still have laws predating the Civil War, which make profane swearing a class four misdemeanor. How about that? But today, politicians have a long history of swearing, and they are the leaders we are, uh, that we are to look up to and follow their example. They are our model. Recordings of the White House during the Johnson and Nixon administration in the 1960s and 70s document extensive presidential profanity. Andrew Jackson reportedly swore so much that his pet parents started imitating him to the point it had to be removed from Jackson's funeral. (laughs) But for the most part, politician profanity has been either fleeting or shuttered behind closed doors. Until recently, research by analytics from GovPredict uh, found that politicians' use of profanity on Twitter has taken off. In the three years ending in 2016, politicians tweeted a total of 408 profanities. Contrast that with the next three years, where profane tweets increased by nearly 15 times to 6,047. 2016 was clearly a turning point for how politicians use language. Now, number four, BLM, Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd Environment. Black Lives Matter is a decentralized political and social movement protesting against incidents of police brutality and all racially motivated violence against black people. The killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on May 25, 2020, sparked protests across the United States and worldwide. And number five, the Me Too movement. Bill Cosby is released. The Me Too movement With variations of related local or international names, it's a social movement against sexual abuse and sexual harassment where people publicize allegations of sex crimes. One of the biggest effects of the Me Too movement has been to show Americans and people around the world how widespread sexual harassment, assault, and other misconduct really are. Sexual harassment has hardly been erased in the workplace. Federal law does not fully protect huge groups of women, including those who work freelancer at companies with fewer than 15 employees number six the january sixth interaction at the capitol riots on wednesday january 6 2021 the united states and washington dc was stormed during a riot and violent attack against the u.s congress and that was all on television you saw the videos a mob of violent rioters attempted to overturn defeat in the 2020 presidential election by disrupting the joint session of Congress assembled to count electoral votes to formalize the president-elect's victory. Five people died either shortly before, during, or after the event. One was shot by Capitol Police, one died of drug overdose, and three succumbed to natural causes. More than 140 people were injured. The assault on the Capitol generated substantial global attention and wisely condemned by political leaders and organizations, both in the United States and internationally. As part of the investigations into the attack, the FBI opened more than 400 case files and more than 500 subpoenas and search warrants have been issued. More than 500 people have been charged with federal crimes. Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C. were later found to be listed in the FBI's terrorist screening database. Did you get that? Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C. were later found to be listed on the FBI's terrorist screening database. Number six, COVID-19 and the emerging violence. Many of us are facing challenges that can be stressful, overwhelming, and cause strong emotions in adults and children. Public health actions such as social distancing are necessary to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But they can make us feel isolated, lonely, and can increase stress and anxiety. Beyond getting sick, many young people's social, emotional, and mental well-being has been impacted by the pandemic. Trauma faced at this developmental stage can continue to affect them across their lifespan. Emerging data shows an increase in calls to domestic violence helplines in many countries since the outbreak of COVID-19. Sexual harassment and other forms of violence against women continue to occur on streets, in public spaces, and online. The COVID-19 pandemic has only intensified violence against women and girls, particularly in, but not limited to, the domestic sphere. Stay-at-home measures are compounding perpetrators' use of mechanisms of power and control to isolate victims. Unemployment, economic stability, and stress may lead offenders to feel a loss of that power, which in turn may exacerbate the frequency and severity of their abusive behavior. The world we live in makes us think we are normal. Think about it. Number one, gun violence in safe settings. Number two, the language in political elections, number three, violent protests for uh, Black Lives Matters and George Floyd, Um, number four, the Me Too movement, number five, uh, January 6th insurrection, the Capitol riots, number six, COVID-19 and the emerging violence. If you don't think about it, we become numb to it. We accept it as normal. That in itself is not normal. That is delusional. We are practically in a state of psychosis. This is when a person cannot tell what is real from what is imagined. Today we accept the, the ethical past is not normal. We accept the past as being too strict rather than being of order and of good taste. Years ago, LGBTQ was frowned upon. Today it is celebrated with parades and national days of re- recognition. It even gets a presidential recognition. Here's a June 1st proclamation signed. June 1st, it's a proclamation. A federal proclamation, and I, I read part of it, quote, this is a quote. Now, therefore, I, Joseph R. Biden Jr., President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim June 2021 as Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Pride Month. You see, this proclamation spread throughout the world, and in his speech, the president said, and I quote, this is a quote from the president. This is all public information. This month, pride flags are flying, as some of my friends in our last administration, in the Obama-Biden administration, who are openly gay, they are flying in more than over 130 U.S. embassies around the world. What should we know about the end times, and what, if anything, should we do to live out our faith in the midst of these turbulent times. Today, we are a culture without faith, a culture disconnected from faith that gave life to it in the first place, and thus, ultimately, a fragile culture. Our continuing coverage of the signs of the end times include, number one, many will be offended. Number two, false prophets, false teachers. You heard Pastor Jose. He preached it. He taught us. We learned he also introduced the third sign of the end times, lovers of themselves. And the fourth one, the fourth one, we'll, we'll talk about that later. That's coming soon to our Resurrection Center near you. Today, I continue with the third sign that Pastor Jose has already introduced. Again, that's lovers of themselves. So today's agenda, we're going to talk about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, describing lover of themselves. Number two, we'll talk about the end-time cultural behaviors. Number three, we'll talk about the book of Matthew, chapter 24. It talks about the end times. Number four, we'll talk about the beginning of sorrows. That's the famines and pestilence. And number five, we'll, we'll trust the Lord. We'll talk about how we can trust the Lord to get through this. So let's talk about number one, lovers of themselves. So I'm going to read Second of Timothy, Second <coughs> of Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, uh, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. That's second of Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. So what did the scripture talk about? It talked about eight characteristics. Number one, lovers of themselves. Number two, lovers of money. Number three, being boastful. Number four, being proud. That's, that's a prideful behavior. Number five, abusive. Number six, being dis- disobedient. To parents, number seven, ungrateful, and number eight, unholy. See, Second Timothy chapter three verse two: people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. That's Second Timothy chapter three verse two. So let's talk about the first one. First, people will be selfish rather than serving others. By being selfish, actions of deception and manipulation take place so that a person can take advantage of their own needs without the thought of others they focus on their own comforts. Second, evil people will be possessed with wealth. Material things are not evil in and of themselves, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil as we see in 1st of Timothy chapter 6 verse 10. These are people who put focus on material things like a big house and a car. Unfortunately, they show them off in a way that shows you who their their god is. Anything that puts attention away from God is a form of idolatry. Third, these people will be proud, meaning they are preoccupied with people noticing them and their actions. This is related to concepts such as arrogance, but puts the expectation on others. A proud person not only thinks highly of themselves, they expect other people to demonstrate approval. What are the characteristics of a prideful person? Pride is being selfish. Think excessively about self. Pride is based too much on self-love. Thinking the worth of our self is higher than it actually is. This is all about self-worship. Preoccupation with the image, uh, our own image or self, that's, that is uh, the characteristics of a prideful person. Pride is narcissism. It means in love with our image or self. So that's the characteristics of a prideful person. 4th fourth, fourth, let's talk about the fourth one. Such people will be arrogant. This is from the Greek word uh, hyperphanoi, literally meaning putting oneself above others. This term seems to refer more to one's state of mind, while the idea of selfishness involves a similar problem, but indeed, being arrogant means overbearing pride or self-importance. Another example of arrogance is when a person thinks he is never wrong. The definition of arrogant is sometimes, is someone, I should say, who is full of self-worth or self-importance, and who tells and shows that they have a feeling of superiority of, over others. No one likes to be around an arrogant person, since it is a quality that does not attract people. Yet some people may be arrogant and find it difficult to recognize it. Here's our signs you're arrogant. Okay, I'll just give a couple. Number one, you're constantly late. There's nothing absurd in being or showing up late once in a while. This may be a bad habit on your part. However, when you're constantly doing this intentionally, this could be a sign that you are arrogant because you seem to feel that like your time is more valuable than others. Number two, you interrupt others a lot. When you interrupt others a lot to show that you have something more important to say than what others are saying, it means you have a little regard for the opinion of others, and this could be a sign of arrogance. Fifth, these people will be abusive. Types of abusive behavior are designed to intimidate and control the victim. The abuser may deny that they have occurred or blame the victim for making him or her act in a negative manner, controlling through jealousy, blame others to take attention off, threatens to report to authorities on someone, like the police, the IRS, or immigration, uses force in arguments, and finally, physical assault. Now the sixth, the sixth example, these wicked ones would break the commandment to honor one's parents. Exodus twenty twelve: honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land uh, the Lord your God is giving you. This is a common thread in the lives of those who despise authority. Children who do not respect their parents typically do not respect anyone. Those who do not honor their parents in this context have problems beyond simple family conflict. Just listen to our youth. Look at how parents respond. Just observe the lack of obedience. Number seven, they will be ungrateful or unthankful. This closely relates to the ideas of selfishness and arrogance. Those who are ungrateful typically feel entitled to certain things rather than being thankful when they receive. They are angry when they are not. An example of entitlement is someone who believes they deserve better treatment, better service, better circumstances than others around them without merit. People who suffer from entitlement issues often don't have logical reasoning for why they feel they should have better treatment. And let's do more. Uh, Self-entitlement is when an individual perceives themselves as deserving of unearned privileges. These are people who believe life owes them something, a reward, a measure of success, a particular standard of living. Researchers in the field of psychology who study entitled and Individuals define entitlement as a personal characteristic in which someone has a pervasive sense of deservingness. Entitled individuals think they deserve more than other people, even when they really aren't better than others are. The entitlement mentality is defined as a sense of deservingness or being owed a favor when little or nothing else has been done to deserve the special treatment. It's the you owe me attitude. Entitlement is a narcissistic personality trait. And eighth, these depraved people will be unholy, not truly desiring to live according to God's truth. God is described in the Bible as holy, which means set apart. That we see that in Exodus 15.11 and Isaiah 6.3. In contrast, these evil people are unholy, immersed in the fallen world. This echoes uh, an illustration Paul used, the Apostle Paul used, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, and I read of Timothy, chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. You see, God gives us a great invitation in these two verses. In His great house, in God's great house, there are only two sorts of vessels: vessels for honorable purposes or vessels for dishonorable purposes. You are either one or the other. God calls you to make the choice. Which one will you be? So, what did we talk about? This is a review of the Second of Timothy chapter three verse two that we just talked about. In Second of Timothy three verse two, the Scripture reads: "People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive." disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So number one, lovers of themselves. Number two, lovers of money. Number three, boastful. Number four, proud. Number five, abusive. Number six, disobedient to their parents. Number seven, ungrateful. And number eight, unholy. So we're done with the discussion of Second of Timothy. Next, we're going to talk about the end-time cultural behaviors. The end-time cultural behaviors. So what are the end-time cultural behaviors? I'm going to talk about four. Uh, there's the vulgar language, the loss of decency, the family at jeopardy, and sexual immorality. Again, the end-time cultural behaviors. I'm going to talk about four. Vulgar language, loss of decency, family at jeopardy, and sexual immorality. So let's go to number one, vulgarity. This is the vulgar language. Vulgarity in the sense of vulgar speech can refer to language which is offensive or obscene. The word most associated with the verbal form of vulgarity is cursing. Vulgarity is offensive to, to good taste or moral morals because they are gross or obscene. But now it's been embedded into everyday common language. The definition of vulgar is something that is in poor taste, that lacks in sophistication, that is rude or unrefined. As I work around the world, people say I talk funny. They say I'm missing words in my speech. These are people just learning English. They know the cursing swear words better than I do. They even use them grammatically correct in terms of how Americans use vulgarity. I guess on how they became an expert. Streaming TV on Netflix, our children are exposed to this. (laughs) So people who don't know English are learning what our children can learn even better, and it spreads through the world. Today, when adults hear a young child use inappropriate language, they usually they usually either laugh or are shocked and do not respond. This can be confusing to the child and make it harder to address the issue. In America, they have the right as Americans to cuss. It's generally frowned upon, but not wrong or illegal. That's in America. Over time, it's allowed. The language you hear on TV from the 1950s is different from today. Do you see the direction we are heading towards? The definition of decency relates to the personal quality of decency is one of honesty, good manners, and respect for others. Years ago, kids were taught to treat others with respect and consideration. It relates to the importance of treating others with dignity. As a community, it's about mutual respect. Over time, decency has referred to manners, but today decency is mainly a strong sense of right and wrong and a high standard of honesty. When a criminal, or dictator does horrible things, people assume they have no sense of decency. We see the devaluing of integrity in the workplace, in politics, in friendships, in romantic relationships. There is a growing trend of manipulation and deception driven by selfishness. The greed-driven comes from a flavor of underhandedness that has grown more acceptable than before. People have greater and greater difficulty being honest and instead find it easier to say what the other person wants to hear face-to-face and then reveal their real intentions and feelings via their actions failing to deliver or by reversing themselves later. This dangerous and disturbing trend will be harmful and erode trust. That's the world we are living in. Granted, politicians were not always the most virtuous people, (laughs) but they at least attempted to project images of honesty and integrity. TV shows in the distance past had a value system that depicted people who would follow the golden rule and do the right thing with respect to the rights and feelings of others. That brings us to today. TV, movies, streaming content, and video games are loaded with gross violence. People are depicted, uh, police I should say, police are depicted violating rights and beating confessions from suspects from what they see as the greater good. People are slaughtered in great numbers with no regard to the sanctity of life. Is it any wonder that mass shootings are occurring with increasing frequency? What are we talking about related to a family in jeopardy? We're going to talk about number three, family in jeopardy. Uh, It's broken families, unhappy marriages, uh, unhealthy relationships, divorced couples, abused spouse, husband, wife, child, dysfunctional children, troubled teenagers, and struggling, frustrated parents. Uh, A broken family is a unit where the family members have significant emotional problems with one another. As a child, you don't realize it, but this environment's effects are life-changing. There could be abuse or neglect, and there's definitely a lack of support for a child or children in the family. Today, we see broken families. Divorce is greater than 50%. People are choosing not to get married and live in fornication. Uh, this way, they have a backdoor. The institution of marriage teaches us that, ma- that in marriage, it's not about you. It's about your spouse and children. A large population of people today come from broken families. The emotional stress of a divorce alone can be enough to stunt your child's academic progress. But the lifestyle changes and instability of broken family can contribute to poor educational outcomes. When you come from a broken family, it feels like you're isolated and cut off from the rest of the world. Being so distant to a parent or a sibling often pressures you into feeling like you need to deal with it yourself. It hurts because it's sometimes difficult to understand why your family is like this. Here are some signs of an unhealthy relationship. Number one, physical abuse. Your partner pushes you, hits you, or destroys your things. Number two, control your partner. It's control. Your partner tells you what to do, what to wear, or who to hang out with. Number three, humiliation. Your partner calls you names puts you down or makes you feel bad in front of others. Now let's talk about number four, sexual immorality. First of all, immorality is a violation of moral laws, norms or standards. It refers to an agent doing or thinking something they know or believe to be wrong. Let's just say it, sexuality is God's design. He alone can define the parameters for its use. It's God's design. The Bible is clear that sex was created to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who are in a covenant marriage until one of them dies. That's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. Matthew chapter 19, verse 6 says, So we are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Biblically, sexual immorality is defined as any activity, in the realm of sexuality, of course, that lies outside of marriage, relationship, and biblically, a marriage relationship is defined as one man and one woman. Sexuality is God's sacred wedding, gift to human being. Any expression of it outside those parameters constitutes abuse of God's gift. Abuse is the use of people or things in ways that they were not designed to be used. The Bible calls this sin. Adultery, premarital, uh, premarital sex, pornography, and homosexual relations are all outside of God's design, which makes them sin. Unfortunately, times have changed and what was wrong in biblical times is no longer considered sin. In the New Testament, the word most often translated sexual immorality is "porneia." This word is also translated as whoredom, fornication, and adultery. It means surrendering of sexual purity and is primarily used of premarital sexual relations. From this Greek word, we get the English word pornography, stemming from the concept of selling off. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of biblically defined marriage relationship. And that's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 5. And I read, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, of the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and a woman and a mother Uh, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 5. This scripture relates to the institution of marriage created by God and written in the Bible. We as a people forgot that. So what did we just talk about? We talked about the end times cultural behavior. There were four of them that I talked about. I talked about the vulgar language. Number two, I talked about decency, the loss of decency. Number three, we talked about a family at jeopardy. And number four, we talked about sexual immorality. So number one, vulgar language. Number two, loss of decency. Number three, family of jeopardy. And number four, sexual immorality. Now we finished talking about the end times cultural behaviors. Now we'll talk about what we can learn from Matthew chapter 24 about the signs of the end times. So let's take a look at what Matthew chapter 24 talks about. What can we learn from that? So let's, let's learn from that. Number three is the topic that we're talking about is Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. I'm going to read that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end uh, of the end of the age? Uh, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and I will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pain. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, here's a summary of Matthew chapter 24, and I'll, I'll give the whole chapter so you understand. See, Jesus teaches them that they should t- take care not to be deceived by people who falsely uh, claim to come as his representative after he has left them. He tells them that although many terrible things will happen that will alarm them and cause them to think that the world is ending, these will not be true signs. The events he predicts include wars, famines, and earthquakes. He tells them that the disciples themselves will be hated, tortured, and killed because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. He explains that many of his followers will fall away and betray the rest, that the false prophets will come and deceive many. Jesus teaches that those who stay true to him in his teachings will be saved, and that the world will not end until the good news of of God's kingdom is proclaimed to the whole world. But when the world does end, it will be violent and sudden like lightning. His followers must not waver or turn back, but continue to follow God's teaching. He tells them that they must not deviate from what he himself has taught them, even if false prophets give seemingly credible signs. Jesus predicts signs like the darkening of the sun and the moon, and then tells them he will return in glory. He says he will send his angels to gather his true followers to him. Uh, Though the world will pass away, his teachings will remain in the true guide for their survival. Jesus tells them that only God, the Father, knows when the end of the world will come, so that they should be ready at any time and always live in the way he has taught them. In this way, they will be sure of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's uh, Matthew chapter 24. Now we're going to talk about famines and pestilence, i.e., let's talk about COVID-19, shall we? While the term pandemic is the modern term and never used in scriptures, The Bible does use ancient Hebrew and Greek words for pestilence and plagues at least 127 times. Pestilence means a deadly and overwhelming disease that affects an entire community. The Black Plague, a disease that killed over 30% of Europe's population, was certainly pestilence. Pestilence is (coughs) is also one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. While not every use of the words pestilence and plagues in the Bible refers to a terrible infectious disease, many of the references do. Throughout the Bible, we see repeated examples of God using diseases to accomplish his divine and sovereign purposes. Because Pharaoh refused to set the Israelites free, God decided to punish him, sending 10 plagues on to Egypt. These include the plague of blood. God ordered Aaron to touch the River Nile with his staff, and the waters were turned to blood. What are God's sovereign purposes for using such terrible diseases? Here they are. Number one, executing divine judgment on an individual, a nation, or many nations for chronic unrepentant sin. Number two, warning other individuals and nations that they too could face divine judgment for chronic unrepentant sin. And number three, shaking an individual, nation, or many nations so that they will wake up from spiritual slumber or rebellion, repent of their sins, and turn in faith. To a holy personal biblical healthy relationship with God in the gospels jesus christ warns his disciples that pestilences will be one of the signs of the last days of human history a time of shaking the world to wake up and realize that christ's return to judge and reign over the earth is increasingly imminent let me read matthew chapter 24 verse 3 through 8 let's let's read that now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors and wars, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now let me share with you Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful signs and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and per- persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues in prison. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. See, the Lord warned the children of Israel that terrible diseases would result from chronic unrepentant sin. You can see this from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 through 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 58 through 62. Our God, the Lord God, also repeatedly warned the nations of the world beyond Israel that terrible diseases would be inflicted upon them in the future, both as judgment for chronic unrepentant sin and to shake the nations and draw them to the Lord. No fewer than 12 times in the book of Revelation, God warns that terrible pestilence and plagues will come to the nations of the earth as part of his judgment of sin prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This period is known as the Great Tribulation. That's what it's called, the Great Tribulation. We see that in Revelations chapter 7, verse 14, and it will involve the most devastating period of divine judgment for unrepentant sin in all of human history. So what is Revelation chapter 7, verse 14? And it says, I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, plagues are a way that God sees, seeks to get our attention about our, our uh, finitude and mortality, as well as how giving attention to God. Notes Dr. Darren Block, the theologian and professor at Dallas Theology Seminary. They are an opportunity for a reflection about how we live and a reminder we are not God's ourselves. There is hope for those who trust the Lord. Let me share with you. There is hope for those who trust the Lord. In Jeremiah 17, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. To trust is to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of something. So when it comes to trusting God, that means believing in his reliability, his word, his ability, and his strength. The Bible says that God cannot lie, that he always keeps his promises. That he loves you and has good in store for you. Trusting him means believing what he says about himself, about the world, and about you is true. Trusting God is more than a feeling. It's a choice to have faith in what he says, even when your feelings or circumstances would have you believe something different. Your feelings and circumstances matter and are very much worth paying attention to. God cares about them both. But those things alone are not reliable enough to base your life on. They can change at any moment, even in an instant. God, on the other hand, does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and therefore is worthy of your trust. Trusting God is not about ignoring your feelings or reality. It is not pretending that everything is okay when it isn't. Trusting God is living a life of belief in and obedience to God, even when it's difficult. Because God loves you, you can show your trust in him by Talking about all your feelings and circumstances with Him, with God, the good and the hard. Through prayer. Don't let your emotions rule your life. Bring them to God so He can help you address them. He is not disappointed or frustrated by your struggles, doubts, or pains. He cares about you and He trust and you can trust Him with those things. When you trust, you go to God in His Word when life is hard. You also act on In obedience, doing what God says in his word, and trust that he will ultimately take care of the rest. In trust, you do not look for security in other things. You look to God to hold you securely in difficult circumstances. You won't do this perfectly, but God is kind and patient with you while learning to trust him. So today we have been seeing the signs of the end times. Before today, we had talked about uh, two other uh, signs of the end times. There are four signs of the end times that Pastor Jose has been introducing to us. Number one, first, will be many, uh, will be offended. Okay, number one, uh, many will be offended. Number two, number two, false prophets, false teachers. Today, we closed out, we finished. Number three, lovers of themselves. And the fourth one is coming soon to a resurrection center near you. So, what's happened today? What's happened today? Number one, We had a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. Number two, we looked at the world we live in today. Number three, we looked at the delusional state we are in. Number four, we talked more about the third sign, lover of themselves, right? And number five, we talked about the cultural behaviors of the end times. Number six, we talked about famines and pestilence. That's the beginning of sorrows. And number seven, we talked about hope for those who trust the Lord. And number eight, we focused on of Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and also Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. So that's what we talked about. So let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, close your eyes and raise your hands, and, and let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> dear Lord, you tell me to put my trust in you when, when I'm afraid. Come into me, dear Lord, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I put my trust and my faith in you because... I know that nothing is impossible with you. I believe in the power of your hand. I believe in your intervention. I believe that you are Lord. You are the God most high. You are the creator of heaven and earth. I place all my faith in you. You strengthen me, Lord. Your holy force keeps my spirit alive and burning fiercely for you. I know that you and I can overcome anything. Thank you for remaining faithful for your chosen people. Thank you for guiding me in my life and helping me to become a vessel for your will. I pray that I continue to put my faith and trust in you because you know all things. You know what the hearts of your people need, and I know you will help me through whatever this life brings. Dear Lord, you strengthen me. Thank you for guiding me in my life and helping me to become a vessel for your will. I pray that I continue to put my faith and trust in you because you know all things. Guide my actions so that I can live by faith and have a life in you abundantly and eternally. Cleanse my thoughts of impurities, dear God. Keep my eyes fixed on you and you alone. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for joining me. My name is Dave.